Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn and how we teach and how they overlap. This is episode 81. What if it goes wrong? Well, what if it goes right? Worrying about things going wrong is a common stressor, not just for students, but for teachers as well. But if we allow that worry to take over our brains, nothing productive happens, right? In this episode, Adam and I are going to talk about some tools for short-circuiting that constant worry problem. Now, when we learn, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, we are building bridges from our short-term memory to our long-term memory. And these metaphorical bridges help us move information back and forth between the short-term, where we manipulate and examine and work with information, and the long-term, where we store it till it's needed. If we can build strong bridges, usually through repetition, we get better access to what we've learned, and then it's easier to recall it when we need it. For example, when we're taking a test. But when you learn, you're not just building informational bridges. It's not just data. You're also building emotional bridges. And if you're in a state of worry when you're learning, you're making worry the go-to emotion associated with those bridges. And that can be really counterproductive because then your brain will think, the only way I can get at this stuff is if I'm worrying. Like the idea that When you're happier, you tend to recall happy memories. But if you're not happy, it's really hard to recall happy memories, right? Well, in the same way, if you've put all these memories in storage while you've been in a state of constant worry, it's going to be hard to access them if you're not worrying. And worrying shreds your brain. So how do we fix this? One way to counteract this problem is to start building your bridges using more success-focused thinking. For those of us who are used to worrying, this can sound a little weird, but it is possible to refocus your thinking and thus your emotions towards success using three simple steps. First, challenge the worry. The next time you think, what if this goes wrong? What if I fail? Stop that thought and examine it. Ask yourself, what if I succeed? What if I do well? What if this goes right? Imagine the outcomes of success. This goes along with the self-fulfilling prophecy. If we set ourselves up to believe in things going wrong, the chance of them going wrong goes way up. And worrying is a kind of believing. So at first, you'll have to actively challenge your thought and say, okay, it could go wrong, but what if it goes right? What if I succeed? And imagine that scenario too. Put that same mental and emotional energy into seeing things going well that you do when you worry. And yes, this may feel unrealistic at first, especially if, like me, you're used to listing out every worst case scenario. But to be honest, if that's all you're doing, that's lopsided thinking. That's only taking account, at best, half the possible outcomes. So challenge that thought. Replace what if this goes wrong with what if things go well. Second, determine what success means for you in this situation. Note, 
Success does not have to look like what your parents told you it had to look like or what your teacher says it has to look like unless you've got a minimum standard. But if your teacher's telling you the only success is straight A's, frankly, they're wrong. Or what your boss told you it would look like. You've got to decide what it will look like for you if things go well. What does success look like for you? So does it mean that you've completed all your homework assignments and gotten them turned in on time? If you're a teacher, does it mean that you've graded that entire stack of essay exams and logged them in your gradebook? And for both of those, does it mean you have to get it all done in one day? Because if it does, that's a little unrealistic, right? Maybe you should allow yourself a week to get that grading done or a week to get that homework done. Does success mean getting your main point across in the paper you're writing? Maybe it means having inbox zero in your work email. Teachers, we're all in this situation, right? How about getting an encouraging email from your teacher or getting an appreciative email from your student? Don't all those things look like success? The important thing here is you get to define what success means to you. And something Adam said reminded me of a sports story. Shocking, I know. Sports analogies again from you, Denor? From me? Never think of it. Go on. The late San Diego Padres outfielder, Tony Gwynn, was known for having a very high batting average when he played, meaning he got a lot of base hits. And he was asked how he prepares. And he said, I will always watch video of me getting hits. And he was asked, do you ever watch the videos of you making out so that you know what not to do? And Gwyn replied, I've made more than my fair share of outs. I want to study my success. I want to study when things go right. He's putting himself with that, or he was, I should say, putting himself in that right mental space by not only visualizing success, but by seeing what he had done well. The important thing in challenging your worry is you're defining success for you. Some are going to define it as the freedom to do what they want, when they want. Other people define success as doing meaningful work that helps people. And neither of these people is right or wrong. This is what success means to them. What does success mean to you? And once you have a definition for yourself, your definition of what being successful might look like and feel like, remember feelings are important here too, then imagine what it's going to be like when you achieve it. Imagine what you're going to feel like when you see a good score at the top of that paper that you're working so hard on. Imagine the good feeling of seeing a teacher's comment telling you how well you did on this assignment and why. If you're a teacher, imagine getting an appreciative email from a student who you supported through a really rough period in your class when they were just flailing and trying so hard and they weren't understanding what they were doing. And then you get an email from them saying, you know, Dr. Bloom, this helped me so much when you did this and this and this. I could never have gotten through it without you. It feels good to get an email like that. Imagine reading your student evals after the semester is over and you've got five or six students praising you to the skies for that project that you assigned, which it turned out gave at least two of them ideas about what they wanted to do with the rest of their life. To make it feel less unrealistic for those of you who are saying, but, but, but that doesn't sound realistic because everything goes wrong. It only goes wrong because you've primed yourself so that it will go wrong. So to get yourself away from the, that feels unrealistic, you can then use step three. And step three is, Ask yourself, what's one small thing I can do right now to move myself toward success? 
Maybe you can go through your flashcards or rewrite that section of notes from yesterday's lecture. Maybe you can go visit office hours to get a question cleared up or get together with your study group members to go over the directions of a project or to study together for a test or a quiz. If you're a teacher, maybe you can grade one set of homework assignments or prep one lecture. Maybe you can respond to two students in email about their questions or write 10 test questions for the upcoming midterm. Whatever it is, identify one thing, one step you can take to move towards success. If you take a small step towards success every day, you're much more likely to succeed than if you simply worry about whether you'll fail. So the method we're putting forward here, it boils down to three basic steps. Number one, challenge that worry of what if things go wrong with, well, what if things go right? Challenge it. Then define what success means for you in this situation you're worrying about. And notice for you, we are not talking about what it means to your mom, what it means to your husband, what it means to your boyfriend, what it means to your partner, what it means to your friends or even what it means to your teacher. Your teacher doesn't get to define what you've decided success is. If a C in the class is enough to get on with your life and that's what you've defined as success, that's totally okay. I had a teacher once who tried to undermine this for me. When I was in seventh grade, he wrote in my yearbook, I struggled with this class, and he wrote in my yearbook, an A student satisfied with a C, you're such a disappointment. And I took that home and my dad ripped the page out of the yearbook and set it on fire. He said, no teacher gets to tell you that hard effort isn't enough. Your success. You passed his class. So define what success means for you. That's step two. And then step three is take one small step toward that success. It doesn't have to be a huge leap. The pathway to success when you look at successful people is built of many small, consistent steps that they take toward success day in and day out. It's not gigantic leaps where they go from the starting line to the finish line in one bound. That may happen in superhero movies. It may happen in comic books, but that doesn't happen in real life. I can speak about dealing with warring both as a writer and as a teacher. When I was writing my dissertation and after when I turned that dissertation and wrote it as a full book, I was dealing with a lot of stress and anxiety and worry. Oh, yes, you were. I remember you would come to me and you were just tearing your hair out. Yeah. Thankfully, I've got plenty to replace it with. But yeah. It, it, so far. <laughs> I, I'm going to enjoy this as long as it lasts. But I mean, I had never written a dissertation before. I'd never written a book. And there's this sense like I'd read a little bit and that helped. But there is definitely a sense of what if I can't think of anything to write? What if the ideas I'm putting in this book or in my dissertation are really stupid? What if this is just the worst attempt at a dissertation in the history of dissertations? But you know what? I had read a lot of books and I had read articles and honestly, some were way better than others. And that gave me confidence because I got to tell myself, hey, if people can write and publish things that aren't amazing to every reader, they were still published. So it's getting able to see, it's seeing what other people are doing and saying, okay, they didn't answer every single question about this topic, but they were able to answer a question. And it helped me realize maybe whatever I write is not going to be amazing to 100% of my readers. 
but that doesn't mean I can't get published. And I knew that when I wrote papers and when I wrote book chapters in the past, I didn't write them in one sitting. I would write them in bits and pieces. Sometimes I would start with my method section and work from there, or I would start with one of my findings. And then I would say, okay, what was this the finding to? What was this answering? I would write in small chunks and having a little success to build on, well, that helped me give something to look forward to. Because while I had not written a full book, I had written chapters that had gotten published and the book is just a collection of chapters. So go through my process and just keep repeating it over and over. Do it for enough chapters and it becomes a book. There's, and there's something to be said for that. You know, there's, there's that small steps create success, right? You were doing one small step a day. Maybe it was writing four pages that day, or it was interviewing two people and then writing up your interview notes or whatever, but you were always doing something toward the goal. And I've got to say, I'm just going to compliment you here. I have never seen anyone work harder than I've seen Denor work this last half year since the pandemic hit. He has worked on something like three chapters with me and another colleague, and then something like eight chapters elsewhere, plus getting this book together. And there are a lot of people who are going to be sitting out there saying, well, then what has he got to worry about? Because he's used to worrying. Just like I'm used to worrying and you're used to worrying. If you're listening to this, this is probably a problem you have. Yes. Now, I was born and raised to be a perfectionist. So for me, this was a more generalized thing about my life. Okay, imposter syndrome, I knew imposter syndrome from the time I was six or seven years old. And perfectionism is basically this fear of being wrong or of something going wrong. And the problem is because it's perfectionism, anything going wrong, big or small, all feels like an asteroid hitting the Earth. It feels like an atomic bomb going off. It feels like the worst thing in the world when you suddenly realize that your margins that you turned in on that paper were 1.25 instead of 1. Because, oh my god, the teacher's going to hate me because they didn't follow their directives to the letter. And this makes it much more likely that you're going to worry and freak out over little things and small mistakes that in the long run really don't matter. It may help to know that what you're worried about is something nobody else will ever even notice. It's called the spotlight effect, and I'll try to dig up that um, particular uh, 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 article that I send to my students about perfectionism and put it in the show notes. It's basically the idea that everybody's watching me is not true because they're usually worried that you're watching them. My husband and I are currently watching a British competition show. I love the British competition shows because everybody's so supportive of everybody else, even though they're competing. And it's about potters, people who make dishes and sculptures and other things out of clay. And in the final piece where they had four finalists left, one of the contestants was commenting to the camera on a set of dishware that he'd completed and submitted for judging. And he said, I know it might look good to others, but all I can see is the mistakes. Fortunately, he then followed up to say, and that's where I know I can improve, like the fellow that you were talking about a few minutes ago, Denor, when he said, I watch to see what I did right. Okay, This guy said, I'm looking at what I did wrong so I can improve on it. Maybe he'll get to the point where he says, this is what I've always done right. I'm going to keep doing it right because that's what I'm good at. But even so, this contestant was the guy we are talking to. He was notorious for worrying about what if it goes wrong? What if it goes wrong? What if it goes wrong? To the point that it often pulled away from his ability to focus on doing the work 
And I didn't realize this worry was getting in my way until I was well into grad school. I was really stressed all the time in my first and second year of grad school until an older grad student, by the way, a shout out to Mike Herod here, sat me down and said, Adam, you just need to keep your eyes on the work. The work will eventually get you to success. But if you're stressing out and reorganizing all your class notes every morning, you're not actually working. You're just worrying. And worrying will not get you anywhere in grad school or afterwards. And that blew my mind. It was a revelation. And after that, I started changing and challenging my default. Things will go wrong. Things will always go wrong belief with, well, what if they don't? And focusing on taking smaller steps towards success in instead of trying to accomplish everything in one big leap or in one big jump. You know, like Denor said, you're not going to write a dissertation in a day. You're not even going to write it in a month. It's probably the better part of a year after you've done the research on it. And after I started doing that, after I started saying one step, one step, and if it goes wrong, it's not that bad because it's just one step, things began to get better. I mentioned that I've gone through this worrying also as a teacher. And I remember I struggled early in my career. I was a teaching assistant back east. I was teaching an intro to sociology class. There I am in front of 40 or so students at eight in the morning on a Friday a very cold Friday. I know because we still had ice and snow all over campus. I had only gotten about four, maybe five hours of sleep that morning. I was running on adrenaline. I was running on nerves. Might've been running on coffee or like I said, it was a very cold morning. So it might've also been the New England air just slapping me awake, but I was nervous. Would my students take me seriously? What if they asked something that I didn't know? That was my huge fear. What if I'm asked something that I don't have the answer to? Now, combine this fear with me generally being pretty shy and socially awkward, and this fear of what if I'm put on the spot and I don't know something, it lasted maybe a year or two until I realized a few things. And I realized them because I had friends that I was teaching with and I could talk to about this. And I learned that it's okay to say that you don't know something on the spot, but you'll look into a student's question, then actually follow up on it. And as much as there might be the image of the professor knowing everything, we don't. We're not expected to know everything or think about every possible scenario. And as long as we're honest and we give students that effort, they're generally appreciative. I also learned that the longer you teach, the more classes you teach, the more experience you have. And whether that's in ways of you're covering material differently or thinking through new ideas, but when you don't have that experience early on, it is really easy to slip into that worry. It's easy to slip into that fear of, oh my God, what if they ask me something that I don't know? Adam and I have talked about how feelings are not real, how they're not factual, but they feel very real in the moment. And the last part that I've learned, like being awkward, and I was told this on a teaching evaluation, so thank you, anonymous student from way back in the day. But that got me to change how I approach teaching. Now for that student, I know I'm socially awkward. I live with that awkwardness 24 seven, 
So it wasn't really telling me much. But what I realized was I really am relaxed after laughing. Stand-up comedy makes me laugh a lot. And I know my students like to listen to stand-up comedy. And so what I started doing when we were meeting face-to-face is I would start off with those few minutes before class just playing different stand-up comedians. And sometimes I'd be able to work their material into the lesson, whether it was that day or whether it was a few weeks down the line. But that got me so much more relaxed. I stopped worrying about what if I'm asked and it became, why don't we just talk about this? Let's be in a good mood. Let's talk about this material. Let's learn something new. And I feel like that change not only got me beyond worrying, but also was able to help me change the classroom from being a neutral place where we talk about stuff from lecture and made it a more welcoming learning environment. It made it friendlier. We're now, we're in a good mood because we're watching some comedy, we're laughing together, and we're gonna work together as a team to work on our skills or to understand new ideas. And I wanna comment on what you did too, because what you did was you took evidence and you applied it to the fear of what if they ask me something I don't know? Well, first, hardly ever happened. And then when it did happen, you developed a way to say, okay, I don't know, but let me look at, let me find out a little bit more about that and I'll get back to you. And the world didn't end. One of the ways to challenge the what ifs that I found really works well, when you say, well, what if it goes right? And you picture all the ways it goes right. That what if, what if, what if, I call it Ichabod. It's the little warrior in your head screaming, but what if it doesn't go right? You could say, okay, what evidence do you have that it won't? Show me evidence. Show me proof that what you're worrying about is a valid thing to worry about. Well, what, well, okay, but what if they ask you something you don't know? Well, that's never happened before, has it? Well, no, but it could. Yeah, it could. And how will we deal with it? I'll say, okay, let's take a look at that. Maybe we should all look that up on our phones for a minute. Everybody, you know, John's question was this. Let's look it up because I honestly don't know. Let's look it up and see which sources can you find that are actually valid sources, and then we'll talk about the answers that we found. When you keep on telling the warrior in your head, show me the evidence. If it doesn't have evidence, it's going to slink away. It's going to say, well, there's no evidence, but, but I'm still worried. Well, that's nice. You can go over there and sit in the corner and be worried, but I've got work to do. Okay. Now, how students can use this. First, remembering that worry is often counterproductive, yeah, that can be really hard, especially if that's your go-to state of mind. If you're used to being worried, it really feels weird not to worry. So you could make this countering the worry exercise part of your morning routine, part of your study group meeting, maybe what you do before you start working on your homework and your other assignments in the afternoon or evening. Just sit down and say, okay, what am I worried about? And maybe even write it down. I am worried I will fail this coming exam. Then write the counterstatement. I will do well on this exam. And then define what doing well means for you in this situation. Describe exactly what it looks and feel like. You know, I will feel really relieved and really good, and I will see satisfactory results when I do well on this exam. And doing well on this exam means getting at least an 84%. And if I get an 84%, that's good enough. And then finally, identify and act on one small step that you can take toward that success. So maybe, you know, writing 20 flashcards 
so that you can study them, or picking up your pile of flashcards and going through them once, and setting aside the ones that you didn't know so that you can create a self-quiz. Whatever it is, identify one small step that you can take toward that success. If you're doing this countering the worry exercise in a study group, offer it to the other group members and ask for feedback. Limit that feedback toward ways you can move toward success. Don't allow negative input. The goal is not to be a happy-go-lucky, no-cares-in-the-world positivity person either, but you might say, I think this thing is going to get in the way of me passing this exam. Can I have some suggestions for how to move this thing out of my way? Think of it as creating your game plan. What obstacles or hurdles do you have to overcome to get to the success that you want, and then how will you overcome them? This is a lot more active, and it feels a lot better, and I'll tell you from experience, it feels a lot better to say, okay, I've identified this thing, I don't know what's in chapter four is an issue because I've got a test on chapter four next week. So what do I do to fix it? I'm going to create some flashcards. I'm going to get together with my study group and I'm going to probably create a self quiz and take that so that I can take those steps toward overcoming this hurdle of, I don't know what's in chapter four yet. The way teachers can use this first, put this into practice for yourself. Your students know when you're recommending something, you're not doing yourself. They know you're not being sincere. So apply it to your own life, just as we've talked about for students. Take those small concrete steps because a bunch of small steps leads to big outcomes down the road. Second, give students this tool so they also know the steps. Challenge the thought, describe success, imagine the result, and pick and take one small step toward that goal. And following through is a crucial part. That's where that discipline comes in. The way I say it is, if you've planned out doing everything, but you never actually do it, then you didn't actually do anything. Making a plan and acting on a plan are two different things. Acting on the plan is the step to take towards success. So you make the plan and then you do something on the plan. You make the plan and you start acting, you know, you start uh, putting the plan into action. And when you've done that, then you're taking steps toward the goal, but not until. So that's what we have for you in episode 81. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Android. We're hosted on Blueberry.com. And also, we'd really appreciate it if you could write us a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to join us next week for episode 82 when we talk about ways to create a respectful classroom environment, including when students are shut out of group discussions. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learning made easier. We look forward to seeing you next week.